<laughs> this morning we continue in our confidence series as we're journeying through the book of Luke and we're going a bit of a different way about this today uh, because we're really kind of going to be pulling out a theme from the passage that we've just been looking at, Luke chapter 4, Jesus and been tempted and tested in the wilderness and we're going to kind of journey around scripture a wee bit, touch base on it along the way and hopefully land somewhere where it all makes sense. So let's just pray again for a quick moment. Is that okay? Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this space and into this moment. And we pray that you would touch our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear what it is that you have to say to us today, that you would open up our hearts to receive your word and that we would be transformed by an encounter with you through an encounter with your word. And we agree in this today in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes a pretty bold statement. He says, I am the light of the world. It's a phenomenal statement, isn't it? And then in Matthew chapter five, he makes a similar statement. He's speaking to the disciples and he's speaking of the disciples and he says to them, you are the light of the world. These are two pretty profound statements and they should be foundational in our theology as we gather around them today. But as we put them side by side, we draw out some facts. Three facts come from these. First, most obvious one, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. We need to get excited about these things, okay? Fact number one, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And we, his disciples, we who are in him, we who live in him, we in whom his life is found, well, we are the light of the world. It's our task to take light to dark places. But when we examine those two things, the third fact, and the important one for where we're going today, is that if Jesus is the light of the world and we are the light of the world, then what it suggests is that our world is in need of light. And if our world is in need of light, then it means that our world is dark. And we don't need to look very far to see evidence of that, do we? News, current affairs, social media as the current trend of exposés show that our world, our culture, and those that live within it are dark. And this sounds depressing already, and we're only just a few minutes into the sermon. <laughs> only just a few minutes in, only 83 minutes left to go. And you're probably thinking, is this sermon sponsored by Prozac? But the truth is, it's not all doom and gloom. You see, at the heart of our theology... And at the heart of our understanding as Christians is hope. There is hope. And the hope that we have is that Jesus Christ is the light of this world. And we, his people, are to bring light to this world. And the way that we can do that and the way that we can go about accomplishing that is, first of all, building an understanding of the world in which we live. And Ephesians chapter 6 presents a very helpful understanding of the world in which we live. And it says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now this sentence is a serious piece of theology. And it's a serious piece of theology by which we have to frame our understanding of the world and of those around us. Because it tells us that the struggles that we face is not always to do with flesh and blood. And that's a challenge. Because very often when something's done to us or something is said, it's flesh and blood that we're after. 
isn't it? But actually what this passage suggests is that maybe we need to lift our gaze a little bit and to see that sometimes the struggles that we face are linked to spiritual forces in heavenly places. And we're particular in using that language and saying sometimes, because we've also got to be careful not to see a demon around every corner. Oh, my toast was burnt this morning, the devil's attacking me. No, you need a new toaster. Oh, I missed the bus, I'm under attack. No, you need to get out of bed earlier. My glasses broke, the devil's attacking me. No, stop sitting on them. It's like we need to stop seeing demons around every corner. Sometimes the struggles that we face are linked to spiritual forces in heavenly places. And it might sound mad and we might be deemed as mad in this day and age to suggest that, but it's solid biblical theology that our world exists in a cosmic conflict that is taking place in spiritual places and involving spiritual forces. And this conflict is one which originated in heaven but is now being outworked upon the earth. And in the book of Revelation, we get insight into the, 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 the beginning of that battle and how that battle originated in heaven. In Revelation 12 and verse 7, it says this. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This passage describes a battle that broke loose in the heavens. A civil war between Satan and the host of heaven. And such a battle took place, we're told, according to Isaiah, because Satan said in his heart, I'll ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly in the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. According to Isaiah, civil war broke out because Satan and the host who supported them had aspirations for the throne. They wanted power and they wanted dominion. Satan wanted to be God. Now both Isaiah and Revelation record the same consequence, the same result of this. Isaiah says, how you've fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Revelation doesn't use quite such poetic language. It just calls it out. He was not strong enough. And I think maybe we need to let that settle, actually. According to the scripture, Satan was not strong enough to oppose God. He's not strong enough. He's not strong enough to come against the God in whose palm we are held. He's not strong enough to come against the God who says, even when you walk through the fire and you pass through the waters, I myself am with you. I am your shield. I will go before you. Any weapon that's formed against you isn't going to stand. He's not strong enough to stand against the God who says we are more than conquerors in every situation because of who he is, who Christ Jesus is. And maybe we need to actually allow that to transform our chat and our conversation. 
because we're all too good at talking about, oh, I've had to fight this spirit and this has come against me and that's come against me and the devil's attacking me this way and the devil's attacking me that way, but maybe actually we need to stop highlighting the strength of the devil and highlight instead the strength of the God that is so much bigger and so much stronger. We need to talk about what he's doing. The devil was not strong enough. And so the devil and his minions, they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Satan attempted to usurp the throne, but he picked a fight with the wrong God. Because <laughs> he picked a fight with the Almighty. He picked a fight with a God that doesn't actually know how to lose. And both passages agree that the result of that was that Satan and his angels were ejected from heaven and they were cast to the earth. Now when we bring that to Ephesians, we're told that in Ephesians, these angels are now referred to as rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces. There's authoritative language used to describe their influence, to describe their position within the world. Surely that can't be right, but it is. And it's seen again in the passage that we've been looking at in Luke. In the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the devil just saddles up alongside him, much like he did with Adam. And the question that comes to my mind is, well, how, how could he just do that? Why is he able to just rock up where he pleases? And in a sense, our understanding is developed when we look at Job. And in Job 1, it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And this gathering of the angels, this angelic summit, God asks Satan to give an account for his activity and he says to him, where have you come from? Now let's be clear, it's not that God doesn't know where he's come from or where he's been or what he's been doing, but rather he's asking him this because he's demanding that he gives him an account for his activity and his conduct. And Satan answers him, I've come from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro within it. First Peter backs this up and says, your enemy prowls like a roaring lion. He roams about like a hungry lion looking to see who he can devour. Now bring that into the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and we've got the devil just rocking up alongside Jesus and his statement to Jesus helps our understanding considerably. Look at what he says. He says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. So what we know so far is this. We know that Satan and his angels were ejected from heaven and hurled to the earth. We know that Satan, according to scripture, seems to roam freely throughout the earth. And we know that Satan believes that the kingdoms of the world belong to him. The one other thing that we know is that Satan is a liar. In fact, Jesus says this of him. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he speaks, he lies. He speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. According to Jesus, whenever Satan speaks, he lies. When his lips are moving, he's lying. But more than that, he's the father of lies which means he's the source of lies and he reproduces 
lies. And we see that in this moment of temptation. The promise to endow Jesus with authority in response to worship, that's a lie. I don't believe for a minute that Satan would have given Jesus anything. He doesn't have Jesus' interests at his heart at all. However, there is truth contained within the lie. You see, that's what Satan does. Not only does he speak barefaced lies, but he distorts the truth, which is the same as lying. He takes the truth and he bends it completely out of shape to manipulate and to control, to accomplish his agenda and what he wants. And there's truth spoken here, twisted and bent. Because the kingdoms of the world were given to him. They were given to him in the fall. We understand that when God created humanity, and we come all the way back to Genesis, he created them in his image and in his likeness. And Genesis 1 contains the creative narrative, and it says this. God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. When you look through the creation narrative, you notice that at every stage of creation, God creates by command. He speaks it and orders it and it happens. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse in the waters. Let the waters be gathered together. Let there be dry ground. Let the ground produce vegetation and plants and trees. Let there be lights in the sky. Let the waters teem with life and the sky be filled with birds. Let the earth be filled with living creatures and animals. Every single stage of creation he creates by command. However, when we arrive at the creation of humanity, the language changes. He creates by consultation. He doesn't say let there be. He says let us make. Let us make in our image mankind. There's a consultation within the Godhead and that consultation is that humanity is to be created as a reflection of the Godhead, distinct yet equal, existing in community, all involved in the purpose of God. And here is humanity's purpose. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. There's the purpose. Rule. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The purpose of mankind is to rule. As God is sovereign in the cosmos, so humanity is created as sovereign in the created realm. As God rules over the universe, over the cosmos, so humanity is created in reflection of that, in likeness to that. Humanity is created to rule over the created realm. And the significance of that is seen in the moment that the serpent, that is Satan. Because remember, Revelation says that dragon, that ancient serpent, Satan. The moment that the serpent rocks up alongside Adam and Eve and says, did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, because God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Notice the tactic of the devil here. He tells humanity that in eating the fruit, he won't die. In disobeying God, they're not going to die. They're just going to have their eyes open and they'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what Satan does here isn't just about casting doubt. Isn't just about casting doubt on God's motives and God's intentions. Isn't just about challenging the word of God. Isn't just about inciting humanity and tempting humanity to disobey God and therefore sin. Because remember, Scripture says all disobedience is sin. Actually, what he's doing here is he's seeking to replicate his heart in humanity. Because remember, Isaiah says to us, Satan said in his heart, I'll make myself like the Most High. I want to make myself like God. Satan saddles up to Adam and Eve and says, you eat that, you're just going to become like God. He's seeking to replicate His heart within humanity, a heart that rebels against God, a heart that has no respect for his authority and his sovereignty, for his power and for his glory. And ever since that moment, generations of humanity have been raised up and existed upon the face of this earth with such a heart. But more than that, there's a power grab going on here. Because as humanity chooses to obey the voice of the devil over the voice of God, they choose who they want to believe who they want to follow, therefore who they pledge their allegiance to. Choosing to obey the voice of the devil placed the devil in authority. There are two voices in humanity, or speaking to humanity here. The voice of God and the voice of the devil. And in this moment, humanity chose which voice they wanted to have authority over the way that they lived their life. This choice of obedience was actually an act of submission. And as they chose to submit to the devil, they then come under the authority of the devil and everything that was in submission to them came within the same authority also. Humanity created as the ruler of the created realm just bowed the knee to Satan and everything under humanity's authority inadvertently bowed the knee at the exact same time. And suddenly the whole creation came within the jurisdiction of the devil. Romans 5 tells us sin entered the world through one man. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit and disobeyed God, sin not only entered his life, but sin entered the entire created realm over which he had authority. And in that moment, as he bowed the knee to Satan, the entire created realm came within Satan's jurisdiction. And this is why the scripture says repeatedly, refers to him as the prince of this world. Jesus repeatedly calls out that Satan operates in this world as one with authority. He gives him an authoritative title. In fact, you could almost say that this title denotes sovereignty. It's a regal title, prince of this world. This is Jesus that calls him this. And this is interesting because it points back to the fact that humanity was created to be sovereign in the created realm. But when he bowed the knee to Satan, he placed everything in his sovereignty under Satan's. Therefore, Jesus refers to him with this sovereign title. But notice, he's only a prince and he's not a king. And this is reflected again in the statement in the wilderness where Satan says to Jesus, see all of these kingdoms? 
their mind. All their authority, all their splendor has been given to me and I can give it to whoever I choose. He's calling out his sovereignty. Now notice, Jesus, when he responds, doesn't challenge the validity of Satan's statement. He doesn't turn to him and say, liar, liar, pants on fire. He doesn't challenge the truthfulness of this. Rather, his response is to the request for worship, not the truthfulness of the claim of authority. Now, what does that mean in relation to God's sovereignty on earth? Well, let's be clear. Satan always has been and always will be under the dominion and the authority of God. And we often present the cross of Jesus as the moment that Satan was brought under the authority of God and the rule of God, but that's just not true. He has always been under God's power. The cross was where God dealt with sin. And in dealing with sin, he stripped Satan of his rights of access to the human soul and he stripped him of his rights of authority within the created realm. But when we celebrate the victory of the cross and we call out Jesus' incredible triumph over death, hell and the grave, we can almost inadvertently in our minds cultivate the belief that on the cross was the moment that God finally gained control over the devil when in actual fact God has always been in control. The devil has always been under his dominion and been under his authority. When civil war broke out in heaven, it was the power of God that enforced order and control. It was the authority of God that ejected Satan from heaven and he had no choice but to go because God's the Almighty. When the angels gather in heaven, according to Job chapter one, Satan is summoned. He is made to give an account and he responds to that because God is in control. The Almighty is still the Almighty. He has never not been the Almighty One. He has never not been in control or in authority over the devil. And this is seen in what happened when he evicted Satan from heaven. Golden verses tucked away in Jude. Verse 6 says this, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Civil war broke out. God enforced his authority as the Almighty One. He evicted Satan and his angels from heaven and he penalized them. He bound them with chains and restricted them to darkness. He bound them and imprisoned them within darkness. He refrained them within the boundaries of darkness. And we furthermore see the power and authority of God then because if Satan is brought into his presence, it means that at the moment when the angels were gathered, God just took hold of the chain and yanked him in, in front of his presence. The angelic beings that rebelled against him were imprisoned. They were bound in chains and restricted to darkness. Now, we never build a belief or doctrine based upon one scripture, which is why throughout we've been careful to call out multiple scriptures that present the same thing to us. And thankfully and helpfully, this truth of Jude is echoed again in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, where it says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Could understand this. Right now, Satan and his minions are imprisoned in chains and restricted to darkness. Now, according to Revelation and according to Isaiah, when Satan and his angels were evicted from heaven, they were hurled to the earth. 
Jude and Second Peter, however, state that they are bound with everlasting chains and restricted and chained and imprisoned to darkness. So where did these rebellious angels actually go then? Was it earth? Or was it darkness imprisoned and bound by a chain? Well, it's both. And this comes back to the understanding of who God is. God is holy. In him there is no sin whatsoever. He is pure and he is perfect and he is holy. The scripture also says this about him. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Our God is light. There is no darkness in God whatsoever. And we understand that metaphorically, his holiness and his light are one and the same. And if holiness is the absence of sin, and light is the absence of darkness, then we begin to understand that the holiness and the presence of God brings light. And conversely, sin and the absence of God brings darkness. Sin creates darkness. And apparently sin entered the world through one man. And if sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam, then that meant that the moment that that barrier between God and humanity was erected, as humanity no longer had access to the garden where God walked in the cool of the day and communed with his created, as they no longer had access to the manifest presence of God, then in that moment as sin entered the world, the world plummeted into a condition of spiritual darkness, which means the world came within the length of the chain that bound the demonic. Sin caused separation from the God who was light. Sin caused darkness. Sin released hell on earth because sin brought the whole world within the length of the chain that bound the demonic. And hearing that, you would think, well, that's the done deal then. The verdict is pronounced. The world is destined for darkness and control from the demonic. But actually, we said at the beginning, it's not all doom and gloom, there's hope. And John presents the hope in his gospel. He says to us, actually, everybody, that's the wrong verdict. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into this world. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind and the light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not, cannot, will not overcome it. There is hope. And our hope is this, Jesus Christ is the light of this world. And he came into this world with a specific mandate, a mandate to destroy the works of the evil one, which means he came to destroy darkness. And he came to destroy darkness by destroying sin. Through his death and resurrection, Colossians tells us, he forgave us of our sin. 
He cancelled the written code with its regulations that stood against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and spiritual forces. He removed their power and authority, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus disarmed the rulers and powers and spiritual forces at work in spiritual places. The victory of our Savior pierced the darkness and released light to the entire world. His brow was pierced with thorns. His hands and feet were pierced with nails. His back was pierced from the whip, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our sin. He was pierced to deal with that that caused darkness. And as the blood of Jesus flowed, it pierced the darkness and released the light. For the blood of Jesus and the removal of sin meant that humanity could experience God again. Humanity could step back into the presence of God again. Humanity could connect with heaven once again. And with the blood flowing for the forgiveness of many, heaven invaded the earth and light banished the darkness. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we ask him to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness, that which caused darkness is eliminated from our lives and our souls are bathed with light. All across this world right now, every moment, people are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And every moment, in every culture, in every town and city, suddenly light is banishing the darkness in soul after soul after soul. God is pushing back the darkness. Colossians says this. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Passion translation says it brilliantly. He has rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule, the tyrannical rule of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom realm of his beloved son. For in the son, all of our sins are canceled, and we have the release of redemption through his very blood. How amazing is this? We have been rescued from the tyrannical reign of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son. The word translated means to move or change from one person, place, or condition to another. The minute we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he transitions us, he translates us, he moves us from darkness into the kingdom of his son, which according to 1 Peter 2, 7, is the equivalent of being called out of darkness into light. See, here's what happens. In the beginning, when humanity disobeyed God, darkness consumed the whole world as sin entered into the world. And every generation that came into being thereafter came replicating the same heart of rebellion and existed within the conditions of darkness. But God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son and the light of the world stepped into the created realm and began to shine into the darkness. He gave his life on the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. He destroyed the power of the cross, canceling the power of sin 
sin, canceling it completely from our lives. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we are translated from darkness into light, which means we exceed the length of the chain that binds the demonic. So truly, he or she who the sun sets free is free indeed. Because in that moment of repentance, he walks us in grace the length of the chain that is binding and restricting the demonic and brings us to a place where we are free from its influence. And that means that the devil is just a yapping dog tied to a post. You know those moments where you walk past a garden and the dog charges at you and it's barking and shouting its head off and it's showing you its teeth and you get a fright and it's intimidating and then you see it's tied to the post and you realize actually I exist beyond the length of the chain so I'm fine. <laughs> there are moments when we journey through life carrying the presence of God, doing exploits, releasing the kingdom of God. And as we journey, the devil's not happy and he charges at us and it's scary and it's frightening and he's barking his head off. But the truth is we exist beyond the length of the chain. So he can bark, 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 but he cannot bite. He can charge at us. He can shout at us. He can do all that he wants, but he can't touch us because we're held in the palm of the God who will not let us go and nothing can hold us, nothing can touch us in there because we exist in him beyond the length of the chain. We are more than conquerors because we're in Christ Jesus and existing in him means that we exist in the kingdom of light and we exist beyond the boundaries of that chain. Truly, we can go anywhere in this world, we can walk into any situation and we're fine. It's the deeds of the new covenant because we exist in the kingdom of light and he's bound to the realms of darkness. We live beyond the boundaries of his chain. And yes, there's moments that we get it wrong, and yes, there's moments that we make a mistake, and yes, there's moments that we allow sin to enter into our hearts, and sometimes dark pockets come along, but in those moments, all we need to do is come in repentance and walk it beyond the length of the chain. And this teaches us a lot then, and particularly it teaches us a lot in terms of deliverance. Deliverance and freedom is as simple as repentance. Deliverance doesn't always need to be big exorcism, spinning head and spewing green pea soup. It doesn't always need to be the big, loud, supernatural exploits. Deliverance is as simple as repentance. We take the area of our life that is under the influence of the devil or is under the influence of sin, and in repentance, we walk at the length of the chain into a place of freedom. And yes, don't get me wrong, there's moments in which we need specialized ministry and there's moments in which stuff needs to be broken and stuff needs to be dealt with. But the starting point of every single ounce of freedom and deliverance is repentance. It's walking the area of the life beyond the length of the chain into freedom. And our job, our job as believers is to announce to the world that light has come. That he is the light of the world. And we are the light of the world because it's our job to walk our friends and families beyond the length of the chain. It's our job to journey with those in our workplace beyond the length of the chain. It's our job 
to take a stance in our communities and in our cities and begin to see them walk the length of the chain. It's our job in these moments to take a stand for truth and to stand up for biblical truths and concepts. It's our job in the environments where we are to begin to influence the culture for God. And as we do, we begin to transform that culture and walk that culture beyond the length of the chain. That means the devil does not have jurisdiction and God begins to break out. This is really simple. And it's simple theology. He's bound to darkness. We've been translated to light. We exist beyond the boundaries of the chain. He is just a yapping dog tied to a post. He can bark, 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 but he cannot bite. Child of God, son, daughter of God, you exist in the kingdom of light. The moment you put your faith and trust in him, the moment that you came to him and said, forgive me of my sin, come and be part of my life, in that moment, he removed your sin and iniquity from your life. In that moment, darkness was banished from your life and he bathed your soul in light. You are free. We are children of the light and we need to start living as children of the light. We've been translated beyond the length of the chain that binds the demonic. And so right now, we need to come to a place where perhaps we adjust this, this chat and this rhetoric. And don't get me wrong, I understand that there's times in which we face oppression and there's times that we face attack. But there just seems to be some people out there that it's like always oppression and always attack. Maybe we need to stop glorifying the devil because he's not strong enough. Maybe we need to start glorifying God who is stronger and who is greater. Maybe we need to realize that actually as we journey through this world, we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but he's tied to a post and he cannot touch us when we live in the light. And this, if anything, is the incentive. Day and night, we come and we do an inventory of the soul. God, cleanse me of unrighteousness. See if there's any wrong way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We come and we deal with the areas of our lives so that day in and day out, we live beyond the boundaries of the chain that bind the demonic and we walk in victory. Child of God, you exist in the kingdom of light. It's time to live in his freedom. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?